Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's a big day for Kevin Tam at his U.S. warehouse. We have shipment of one container of electric moped and scooters arriving this morning. It's earlier than what I expected. The driver is already here. It just surprised me. His company, Tam LEV, makes light electric vehicles. And the container that's just arrived at his warehouse in Arkansas has come all the way from Malaysia. From the moment I place order, it takes about one week to manufacture it. And it takes about two weeks to get here. And it takes about three to four days to receive in our warehouse. So total time somewhere around 20 days. The Malaysian element of Kevin's supply chain is new. Tam LEV used to manufacture everything in China. But when the Trump administration raised some tariffs on Chinese exports to 25%, Kevin needed to find somewhere else to make some of his products. So by moving to Malaysia, we actually can avoid that 25%. We get the parts supplied from China and then we ship it to Malaysia. And then we assemble there and ship it to the United States. Kevin is also worried about the risk of political tensions between China and the US getting worse. Tam LEV's move to Malaysia is just one example of a business diversifying part of its global supply chain away from China. In this case, that meant opening a factory near Kuala Lumpur, which went pretty smoothly. But there's a problem. Shifting production takes time and most of the parts still come from China. If our plant is in China, we have issue with the parts. Okay, we just give a call to the supplier. Within a day, those parts arrived in your plant. Moving the factory away from his suppliers has made things more difficult. In Malaysia, if we have some issue on the parts, then it will not just a matter of a call. It involves import-export, So it will take about maybe two weeks to get the parts to our plant. Kevin's situation sums up the problem facing companies trying to cut their reliance on China. In order to match what China offers, the strengths of other Asian economies will have to be combined. But are they up to the task? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. In Singapore, I'm Mike Bird. In London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. In Washington, D.C., I'm Alice Forward. And in today's show, can the alternative Asian supply chain ever replace China? First, we'll hear what makes China so seemingly indispensable to manufacturers around the world. Then we'll find out what the other Asian countries have to offer and what they currently lack. So this is the knowledge and skills value chain that is also needed besides the material supply chain. 
Do these countries have it? No. Did China have it 30 years ago? No. And finally, what needs to be done to strengthen the new supply chain? It's going to be a process and it's going to evolve over time. It may be messy, but I think the writing's on the wall that the current supply chain structure is just not sustainable. Hi, Alice. Hi, Tom. Hey, Mike. Hello. Alice, you sound like you're coming to us from underwater. Uh, what is going on? Yeah, no, I'm not feeling brilliant this week, which you may have gathered from my unusually gravelly tones. I was in New York earlier this week for Goldman Sachs Investor Day, and I seem to have picked up some sort of throat sniffle flu thing while I was there. Well, I hope you make a speedy recovery, Alice. Actually, earlier this week, I was also unwell, but it passed pretty quickly. So hopefully it does for you too. But I understand you've been tracking the latest corporate results from your sickbed. Yes, it's been a big week or so for American retailers and their earnings announcements, which I've been watching with interest, particularly their projections for next year, which beginning to paint a somewhat gloomy picture of increasingly cash-strapped consumers. Yes, so I'm ill and Tom is characteristically gloomy, but Mike must be in good spirits because today we get to talk about one of his favourite subjects. Absolutely. Having knocked you both out with a potent mix from the Bird Institute of Virology, (laughs) it is the second week in a row that I get to talk about a pet subject of mine. Last time it was K-pop, and this time it is global supply chains. Next week, I presume we'll have the plague and you'll be talking about uh, the Bank of Japan on the episode. I haven't quite finished the mix yet, but I'll pitch it and I'll try and get something to you. But that sort of future episode is always on my mind. Anyway, in a programme about the international supply chain, we should probably check how Tom is coping with uh, Britain's fresh fruit and vegetable shortage. There's some very real supply chain issues there, right? Well, yes, thanks for checking. And the struggle is real. So in a nutshell, the situation here in Britain is that all of the cucumbers, tomatoes, peppers and the like have disappeared from supermarket shelves in a sort of apocalyptic scene that feels not all that dissimilar to the panic buying that happened early on in the pandemic, although in this case, the problem is not consumer hoarding. Which British circle of hell is this exactly? Is this a Brexit issue, climate thing, energy crisis thing? Well, that's kind of the point. It's a vegetable farmer's perfect storm here in Britain. The war in Ukraine and the energy crisis is making it harder for farmers here and in the Netherlands to heat their greenhouses. Poor weather, meanwhile, is reducing the harvests elsewhere in Europe and in North Africa as well, and post-Brexit import rules. As a result, our salads are looking very much depleted here in Britain. It's a well-timed illustration of the fragility of supply chains then, if an unfortunate one, for the health of the British people. Exactly. And these issues go well beyond the salad bowl, though, as you well know, Mike. Yes. This week, I have been looking at international dependency on China in the global manufacturing supply chain. And I've been trying to work out whether it's possible for other countries in Asia to attract business away and to establish a sort of alternative parallel supply chain. So the first thing to ask, I ask, is what does this international dependency on China actually look like and how did it come about? Yeah, so this has been decades in the making. You really need to go back to the sort of mid and late 1980s to get a sense of where it started. You can look at something like 1987 when Panasonic, the Japanese electronics firm, 
started talking about investing in China. Where you are now is that China is a linchpin of a multi-trillion dollar consumer electronics industry globally. We've talked a lot about semiconductors in the past few years, but it's basically every industry downstream of that as well. Chinese companies are now interestingly outsourcing some of that work to other countries, both in the region and beyond. Supply chains have gotten longer because of that. But China is still this vitally important component. We're talking about maybe a third of the global consumer electronics industry by value. It's absolutely massive. So if China does things so well, why do we need to look at an alternative here, Mike? Well, the reasons that we're talking about this now, the first one, I guess the most obvious one, is that when China was on the up and up in terms of establishing a major presence in these global supply chains, its relationship with the US has always had its issues, but was broadly positive, often long periods of improvement. What you see now is a huge amount of geopolitical tension between the US and China, and that is making things considerably more difficult. You've seen concrete measures like tariffs, controls on semiconductor exports that have really frightened companies that rely on the ease of doing business in large parts of the world, including obviously China and the US as the two largest economies. But you've also seen quite a bit of financial pressure as well. Manufacturing in China is simply not anything like as cheap as it used to be, particularly Chinese manufacturing wages. Obviously, this is good news for China. It's the result of decades of compounded rapid economic growth. So it's hardly anything to sniff at, but it does make China rather less appealing as a place for lots of types of manufacturing, particularly slightly lower value electronic manufacturing things like that. So you've already seen some companies leaving. There was one Japanese data service that noted a fairly sharp drop in Japanese companies operating in China in the last few years. You've seen reports of companies like Sony relocating some of their production. Most of these companies don't like to talk about this issue very much because they're still going to have to operate in China and in the US. They don't want to upset anyone, but this is a real thing that seems to be happening now. So what would an alternative Asian supply chain look like? Well, it looks like a bit of a patchwork. If you're looking at it pessimistically, you could say that it looks like a bit of a mess. Essentially, there's a huge variety of other countries across Asia from an economic perspective. You have countries like Japan, you have countries like South Korea, where they have already relatively high wages. They specialize in high-tech manufacturing, do a huge amount of research and development, lots of advanced, very specialized manufacturing. You head down through Southeast Asia, you've got some sort of middle-income countries where in a lot of them, the manufacturing wages are now lower than they are in China. They have special niche areas of manufacturing that they do in Thailand that might be in uh, office parts. Malaysia does a lot of manufacturing of lower complexity semiconductors. And then you've got what is essentially the white whale of this supply chain in South Asia, and that's India and Bangladesh, basically, which ultimately are the only places with enough potential new manufacturing workers to make this thing work. And you've seen some activity in that area. You've seen Taiwanese contract manufacturers like Foxconn investing more in India, doing more production in India. So this is going to be a big element of this story. And to find out more about all of this, I wanted to speak to Manmohan Sodi. He's a professor of operations and supply chain management at Bayes Business School in London. Mohan, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure, Mike. 
to start with, I just wanted to talk about why companies are looking to decouple and diversify from China, because there are a few reasons behind this shift. You've got the pandemic and the lockdowns and the heightened risk of production being too concentrated on one country. You've got the geopolitical tensions, particularly the animosity between the US and China. And thirdly, and I guess this is a bit more prosaic and more recognizable for most businesses, manufacturing in China is just getting more expensive as wages rise. Which of these factors would you say is the predominant one? What is the most important driver here? In terms of geopolitics, the tussle between the US and China, it's very exciting. But the reality is, to use your word, prosaic. It's a cost, and costs include not just cost of transportation, but costs of holding extra inventory to cover the supply chain risks involved. There's the cost of non-sustainability, because you're using much more carbon when the supply chains are longer. But yes, as far as labor costs are concerned, Chinese companies have already been outsourcing to other countries. So it's just that the supply chain got longer. Where the goods are being shipped from is different from who you are buying from. When I go to John Lewis and pick up a microwave, I think I bought it from John Lewis, and it might be a John Lewis make, but it's made in China probably, or maybe not even made in China, but made by a Chinese company which has actually plants in Vietnam. So eventually, the company that's buying those goods, the original equipment manufacturer, is buying from someone The goods may be made somewhere else. So that's all driven by costs. And that's the prosaic answer why supply chains are changing yet again. Yes, geopolitics add some more costs and especially very large OEMs want to look good to their governments. But at the end of the day, it's the total delivered cost that matters. And that delivered cost includes cost of transportation, cost of labor, cost of holding extra inventory to cover uncertainties. It includes cost of sustainability. And what about the readiness of these other countries to absorb manufacturing and become a greater part of the global supply chain? Yeah. So when people think of supply chains, they immediately think, okay, suppliers, supplier, supplier, supplies to the supplier, the supplier supplies through a port and some shipping company, and then I get goods. But that's the material supply chain There's also the knowledge value chain that supports this. I need to have R&D. From R&D, I take goods through what's called as engineering, try to make them closer to manufacturing, and then I make a product that can actually be manufactured in mass production, and then I have to also design the production system. So this is the knowledge and skills value chain that is also needed besides the material supply chain. Do these countries have it? No. Does Did China have it 30 years ago? No. So all that has to be developed. The material supply chain, which also includes infrastructure like ports, roads, very prosaic, but very much part of the material supply chain. It also needs universities. You also need manufacturing labs. You also need designers. And you also need people who can design production systems and manufacture production systems. That knowledge value chain also will have to be developed over time. And that process is not fully complete, even in China. When you look at this sort of region, we are again talking about a huge range of countries with different capabilities and different sort of specialisms. 
Is there anywhere in particular that you see a large amount of opportunity in terms of the ability to pick up some of the slack of people looking to move production outside of China or just people looking for other places to invest that aren't China at the moment? I mean, the two countries that have got the most attention are Vietnam and India, for sure, simply because Vietnam has been part of those China-based supply chains for quite some time. And India is becoming part of those China-based supply chains for the past few years. But other countries that come to my mind are Bangladesh, which has been growing its economy steadily and slowly with a fairly low technical base to begin with and lots of problems and high population density and so on. But their GDP has been growing fairly steadily for the last 10, 12 years. That means they are doing something right. So sure, a lot of the economy is based in apparel, but they, despite lots of challenges, the fact that any company or any country can grow its revenues or its assets smoothly the way Bangladesh has done is, for me, it means the country needs a second look for those who haven't looked at it yet. Great. Well, Mohan Sodi, thank you very much for joining us on Money Talks. Thank you, Mike. So Alice, Tom, Mohan Sodi makes a pretty convincing case that it's predominantly financial imperatives that dictate where supply chains go. He's not completely discounting the geopolitical side, but certainly that seems to be very important. The increased cost of transportation involved in a longer supply chain, for example, might seem to keep a company in China. Things like comparative wage advantages in other Asian countries might tip things in the other direction. And that's something that Chinese companies aren't immune to themselves. They've been a driver of the expanding global supply chain, moving their own production overseas to places like Vietnam, where labor is cheaper. What do you make of all this? Yeah, this point that geopolitical risk is just one factor in, in this wider economic calculation that companies make when they're constructing their supply chains alongside not just comparative labor costs, but also expertise and transportation costs. That, to me, was a very good observation. And in reality, I think that calculation is likely to tip different ways, China or its alternatives, in different industries. In fashion and furniture, for example, expertise is much less important. In consumer electronics, where components and even end products tend to be quite small, transportation costs might not always be such a big consideration. But you know, if you're talking about machine tools or engines or even vehicles of various types, it's probably a different story. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point. It's interesting. When I lived in Singapore and I used to think about this region, there was this perception that you'd had countries like Japan, South Korea, Taiwan become rich countries through this export-led growth model. And then the sort of dragon economy had moved on to China. And there was a sense that it had been kind of grounded there, somewhat surprisingly, and that actually these other Southeast Asian uh, Indian economies weren't going to be able to get rich in the same way. But it's interesting that although... China has remained dominant in this kind of manufacturing and export model for so long. But everything's added up now to the point where the costs have got high enough and there are these other factors like the geopolitical things that mean that finally, maybe a decade or two decades later than people expected, actually there is a case for sort of moving supply chains down that curve of cost towards these other countries. I think it's fascinating that you've had to have this set of factors occur in tandem, but it's really interesting. Yeah, on this topic of economic development, I've 
enjoyed our coverage this week of Nigeria's election, which saw Bola Tanubu of the current ruling party elected to the job. Unlike in Southeast Asia, Nigeria has really not seen much industrialization over recent years. The economy there is heavily dependent on commodities and has struggled to translate that into broad-based growth. Hopefully, Mr. Tanubu will be able to change that, though the fact that he is from the ruling party makes me sadly not particularly hopeful. How about you, Alice? What are you looking forward to reading in this week's paper? I really enjoyed picking up Simon Rinovich's piece on the housing market in the US and whether the fact that we're in a housing recession meant that we were headed for an economic one. Housing is one of those topics that is very close to home, haha, for everyone. And so <laughs> I'm always interested to read about as well. But he made this very good point that it's very, very rare that you can get into a housing recession without also an economic one coming. So it may be a leading indicator of doom for the US. To find out more about the US housing market and the Nigerian election, and much more, you need to be a subscriber to The Economist. Listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. And that link is in the notes to this episode. After the break, we'll find out a bit more of what it will really take from companies and governments to build an alternative Asian supply chain. And will it be worth it strategically? There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Mike, before the break, you mentioned this idea that the rest of Asia, taken as a whole, could combine its various strengths to form a viable alternative supply chain to China. If you take these countries in aggregate, what does it look like in terms of the numbers compared to China? Well, by size of population, the rest of Asia, the countries that I've identified, is actually slightly larger than China, and it's slightly larger in terms of the working age population. I think one of the most important segments to look at is the prime age. So we're talking about 25 to 54. That's usually considered a prime age workforce with a tertiary education, meaning something beyond secondary school, high school in the U.S., that population is roughly the same size in both places. It's somewhere between 140 and 160 million people. It's going to be growing a little bit faster in the alternative supply chain, mostly because of new workers coming into the labor market in places like India and Indonesia. In terms of hourly manufacturing wages, there are enormous differences. So again, you go to Korea or Japan or Taiwan Wages are considerably higher than they are in mainland China, but there's now a significant portion of South and Southeast Asia where hourly manufacturing labor costs are considerably lower. If you look at the data that the Economist Intelligence Unit provides, hourly manufacturing labor costs are somewhere north of $8 in China, and they're somewhere south of $3 in a lot of parts of South and Southeast Asia. So there is quite a gap that's opened up there. 
All right. So clearly some big cost savings here potentially from moving production elsewhere in Asia. But what are some advantages that the China supply chain offers? China benefits from a very large single market connected by relatively high quality infrastructure that they've spent decades investing in. When it comes to integration, the alternative supply chain has a long way to go. It's somewhat more integrated than it used to be, and that's because of deals like the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is a very, very large trade deal that provides some interesting single markets in in rules of origin. So it's very good from a supply chain perspective. In terms of the US offering, you've got the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, India has actually joined that, which is quite interesting because it usually doesn't take part in trade deals. Now, the reason that India has joined to some extent is because this is a pretty thin trade agreement at the moment. It doesn't have a huge amount of content, but there is the prospect that it might develop into something slightly more substantial in the future. It sounds like things are moving in the right direction then. Could this be a catalyst for some of these Alt-Asian countries to catch up with China? I sometimes feel a little bad, especially for countries in Southeast Asia that have had really sort of decent economic growth for quite a long time. And they get overshadowed, understandably, by their neighbor to the north with its long periods of double digit growth rates and very strong economic growth. But the bottom line is that lots of countries have been doing this already. You look at Japanese companies, they've been investing in Southeast Asia for decades. You know, they've been building these supply chains both into China and into Southeast Asia for a very long time. So this isn't a sort of reinventing the wheel thing. You've also seen this start with South Korea as well. In 2020, South Korean firms' total stock of direct investment in in the nations of ASEAN, that's the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, and India and Bangladesh hit $96 billion, which is actually higher than the amount that Korean companies have invested in China, that's a pretty huge turnaround relative to sort of looking back 10 or even five years ago when things looked really quite different. So presumably making this work, this kind of combined alternative Asian supply chain would require a lot in terms of political and and diplomatic negotiation between the countries that would be taking part. How would that work? I think the way I'd frame what I've been describing is a sort of ideal blueprint for a new global supply chain. How it would actually work in practice is another question. And to get some of the necessary coordination between those nations would be really difficult. To find out exactly how difficult, I spoke to Wendy Cutler. She was a diplomat and trade negotiator in the Office for the US Trade Representative and is now the vice president of the Asia Society Policy Institute. Wendy, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Mike. Great to be here. So tell us a little bit in your view, how can these wildly different economic capabilities of countries in Asia fit together a little better in forming coherent supply chains? Well, when I think of forming coherent supply chains, I think there are like a number of different steps that need to be taken. And overnight, you're just not going to form new coherent supply chains. It's a process. I think the first step is kind of sharing information about supply chains, about vulnerabilities, about choke points, about suppliers among the countries. The next step could be, for example, setting up mechanisms. So, for example, a crisis management mechanism. If there's something that's going to be happening to 
a part of the supply chain in one Asian country, they could notify all the other partners in that supply chain so steps could be taken in real time to alleviate any concerns. And then once you go past there, then we're really talking about kind of pooling capabilities and even like dividing roles of countries and companies in the production line. And that's a lot more complex because you're talking about sovereign countries, you're talking about building a lot of trust, and you're really talking about having the involvement of private sector companies because at the end of the day, a lot of those decisions have to be made by them. So you've touched a little bit there on some of the thorny issues in making this work. What, in your views, are the biggest challenges to the functioning of something like an alternative or parallel Asian supply chain? Establishing that trust among the countries and among the companies. And remember, a lot of these companies are competitors as well. And so we have already seen that, frankly, in trying to develop a new semiconductor supply chain, where my understanding is like some Taiwanese companies and Korean companies, they're not comfortable kind of all being together with their governments discussing how these supply chains can be made more coherent and aligned and, you know, maybe just form the new supply chain. So these are important challenges that need to be overcome. So in your experience at the USTR, when you're trying to form these economic ties, I mean, it's easy for us to speak about this at The Economist in a sort of journalistic way. You've done it for real. What is it like trying to develop these economic ties as it actually happens? It's extremely complex and difficult. And for example, the US, we would have our own ideas on, let's just say, on how what the rules and principles should be with respect, let's just say, to supply chains. Other countries come in and they have their own views. And then we would need to consult with our Congress and our private sector and get their views. So it's a deliberative process. It's complex. And these kind of issues, let's, again, they touch upon issues of sovereignty among governments. And, you know, are governments really willing to kind of cede some of their dominance in parts of the supply chain to other countries? And the integral role of private companies in supply chains actually makes what is difficult even more complex. Yeah, the U.S. specifically is in a strange situation here. It left what would have been the most obvious vehicle for making this sort of thing work, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The Trump administration opted not to continue negotiations and eventually join the pact. But the U.S. is also the end consumer for a lot of the products that will be made in this supply chain. And to some extent, it's the real driving force of the geopolitical need for it to exist. What can the U.S. do specifically to make this smoother, easier? Is there much that you can do short of of reconsidering and rejoining the TPP? Well, absolutely. Look, in my view, leaving the TPP was a strategic mistake and something that we'll look back on and, and regret at some point. But the world has changed since we left TPP. And if you look at the Indo-Pacific economic framework, one of the four pillars of this new U.S. initiative for economic engagement in the region is supply chains. And so in 2017, when we left TPP, few people were talking about the importance of secure, resilient supply chains. Now, more people are talking about that than the need for open markets and free trade. 
And so the United States, through the IPAF and through a lot of different groupings of countries, depending on sectors and different initiatives, is working hard on establishing resilient supply chains, more coherence, more trust. And I think that work will continue irrespective of whether we decide to once again join in trade agreements. Some of the people we've spoken to have noted that even in strengthening supply chains in the rest of Asia, the countries and companies involved will remain quite dependent on China. Is there a risk that this process becomes expensive and also not all that valuable strategically for the United States if it means there are just two completely parallel supply chains running alongside each other, both of which to some degree depend on China? Look, I don't think there's an alternative. I think given our geopolitical developments and our differences with China, this is just a reality that supply chains need to be moved out of China. But it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen in every product. If you're a U.S. company that's in China selling to the Chinese market, you may be comfortable having two supply chains, even if it makes it more expensive. This is just the reality. And the question is, can this shifting happen in a smooth way that is not cost prohibitive? And if it can't, then maybe you'll see some bouncing back in a reality that with respect to many products, the supply chains with China involved need to continue. But companies are going to be largely making those decisions, keeping in mind the incentives and the punitive actions that the U.S. government or other governments may apply to those companies. So it's going to be a process and it's going to evolve over time. It may be messy, but I think the writing's on the wall that the current supply chain structure is just not sustainable in this geopolitical world. Wendy, thank you very much for making the time to talk to us. My pleasure. Thank you. So Alice, Tom, what did you both make of it all? Yeah, what I thought was really interesting was the slight gap between what Mohan was saying and what Wendy described. Mohan was essentially arguing that there were financial incentives for this old Asian supply chain to develop and that those had become really compelling. And Wendy was arguing a bit more that actually you have to rejig your supply chains because of some of these geopolitical risks and that that was going to impose a higher cost I guess one way to think about it is Mohan was describing some of the pull factors from China. So China's wages have become expensive. The other countries have much cheaper manufacturing costs. And so that will sort of pull supply chains towards them. Wendy was describing more of those push factors. So China has become a more difficult place to do business because of some of the geopolitical risks and strategic risks associated with it. And we talked about this a lot more in our episode earlier in January, in which we discussed whether globalization had potentially sort of lost its way. But it's an endlessly fascinating conversation. And I'm glad that we've been able to pick it up again from a slightly different perspective today. Yeah, I, I think I feel very bullish about the prospects for the rest of emerging Asia in manufacturing. Mike, you were talking before about how the cost per hour of manufacturing labor in China is pretty much three times the rate in Southeast Asia and, and India now. And most of that gap has emerged in the past decade. And even if you just put the geopolitics to the side for the moment, that has huge implications for the attractiveness of producing in China. And the fact that Chinese firms are themselves starting to shift production elsewhere in Asia, as you mentioned, is 
pretty telling, as is the fact that China is enthusiastically adopting robots to help compensate for rising labor costs. In fact, I recently read that the ratio of industrial robots to manufacturing workers in China surpassed the level of America in 2021, which is pretty incredible. I think shifting supply chains will take time, but I do think we're going to see a lot more of that in the decade ahead, and that will provide an incredible growth opportunity for these countries. Yeah, absolutely. I think the element that really comes through in reporting this for me more than anything else is that India is just the absolute linchpin here. The country itself has this tremendous opportunity in that sort of door is just being open. Essentially, what needs replacing in global electronics manufacturing, whether you look at this from a cost basis or a geopolitical basis, is a country of roughly a billion people, of which there's only two. There's literally only one other place that really suits for the task here. And that also means that if India doesn't really want to be involved, if the Indian government doesn't find that playing a big role in this supply chain is part of its policy and is one of its aims, then you're going to have this huge limitation to whether it can work or not, because frankly, Japan's very good at manufacturing. Korea's very good at manufacturing. Lots of parts of Southeast Asia, very good at manufacturing, but they're not big enough and they're not going to get any bigger anytime soon. Some parts of them are too expensive. They're not a single integrated market. So you do have those sort of difficulties in infrastructure and regulation and other logistics. I think this will be the fastest route to manufacturing growth for India, which has a relatively low manufacturing share of GDP that hasn't been increasing over recent years. It's just a question of whether the Indian government and Indian companies see it that way, or whether they'd like to do really what they're doing right now, which is focusing very heavily on an increasingly prosperous Indian market, rather than looking at sort of plugging into a market that's meant for the world where they'll only play a part of the sort of value chain. So it might end up not being a political goer in India. And if that's the case, then this really isn't going to work. But I think, you know, there's a decent chance. There's a good opportunity here. It's going to become increasingly financially difficult to look at this and not see what's on offer. I think that's about all we've got time for on the alternative Asian supply chain. And I think that means it's time to turn to the stats of the week. Well, you know, news these days always feels a bit grim. So I'm going to go with an uplifting one today. Uh, My stat of the week is 29, which is the number of species in Australia whose populations have recovered enough to be taken off the endangered list, which currently has 446 species on it in Australia. So it's nice to see conservation efforts back in my country of origin paying off. This stat, by the way, comes from the Good News Network, which is a website that focuses on finding positive things happening in the world. And I encourage listeners to check it out anytime you find the headlines are getting you down. Because these are Australian animals, I want to make sure that we're not celebrating the return of, you know, some tiny spider that can kill an <laughs> elephant with one bite or whatever. That, no, that's no, presumably the, what we're talking about. These are, these are cute fairy things like bandicoots and wallabies and the like. Okay. All right. I'll accept it. I'm always a little bit worried hearing Australian people talk about their wildlife as a good thing. And a species of whale as well, which is always good. Well, that that sounds lovely. That sounds lovely. Uh, My stat is is a lot more depressing than that in some ways. It's 799,728, 
which is the number of babies born in Japan last year. That number might not mean a lot to you, but when I put it in the context that there were 1.58 million deaths in Japan last year, very nearly twice as many, you can see that, yeah, 799,000 babies, not really quite enough to stop the Japanese population from shrinking and shrinking relatively rapidly in comparison to its speed in the last few years. I love that you managed to make a stat about babies somehow depressing as well. That's a real uh, <laughs> Trump card you've played there, Mike. So I think I'll just move on to my stat, which is minus four and a half percent, which is the average drop in the share prices of companies that hosted big investor days this week. So one of those was Goldman Sachs, which I attended, and the other one was Tesla. And neither investor day do uh, CEOs seem to have impressed investors much. David Solomon got into rather a sort of tense spat with one investor that was a, a little awkward to witness. And Elon Musk seems to have sort of fizzed as well. So uh, any other CEOs considering doing an investor day? Probably just best to cancel that. And I guess most of those investors are going back with limited returns and horrible sore throats by the sound of it. Mm. Um, <laughs> And with that, I want to thank Manmohan Sodi and Wendy Cutler for joining us. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie Keyworth. Our sound engineer is Ting Lee Lim. And the executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. I'm Alice Fullwood. And this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.